You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field, and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge. Joining me today is Aubrey Blanche-Sariano. Aubrey is the Senior Director of People Operations and Strategic Programs at CultureAmp. Through her work, she seeks to question and reimagine systems to ensure that all people can access equitable opportunity. Her expertise focuses on designing and implementing equitable solutions from talent programs and communications to sustainability. Aubrey is a regular thought leader on issues of equity, fairness, and accessibility in organizations, finance, and technology products, and her work has appeared in outlets all over the world. She is also an advisor, investor, and board member to a portfolio of organizations seeking to build a more equitable equitable world. Today, I am thrilled to be exploring why equity is more important than diversity and inclusion with Aubrey. Welcome to the Product Edge, Aubrey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for joining us and especially that you're in America at the moment. So thank you for the flexibility with all the the time zones. Aubrey, we're going to be discussing such a huge topic today, which could easily have an entire season dedicated to it. So um, let's jump straight in. What inspired you to become a DE&I advocate? Yeah, I think it was a a couple of different things. So the first was I landed in the tech industry as a queer, disabled Latina woman. (laughs) And I didn't know a lot about tech before I joined. I was looking for a paycheck because I needed to pay my rent. And turns out I love technology, but I don't love the exclusive and homogenous culture that the industry has. And so I started speaking up about the opportunities I didn't feel like I was getting or others, you know, from communities that I'm in. And what I learned really quickly was that my particular both interests, but also my skill sets were actually really amenable to doing DEI work. So I'm trained as an academic social scientist. So lots of systems analysis, you know, data measurement, experimentation, and so I found that that, that skill set, the inquisitiveness, the ability to look at systems as puzzles and try to change them was kind of exactly what DEI work was doing. And I found it really meaningful. And I think where my career has gone over the last decade is, you know, I first was really, really focused on people programs, which as you can tell from my job title is still very much a big part of my job. Um, but I really expanded to think about the concepts of equity in a lot of different domains. So I do a lot with product development and strategy, both advising and at CultureAmp, but also thinking about how equity impacts things like philanthropy and sustainability in organizations. So now I would say um, I talk about the idea that I think of myself as an equitable designer as opposed to a DEI professional, um, because I think it's about approaching everything that I and we collectively do with that equity lens. Fantastic. And DE&I is such a focus for so many businesses at the moment, but 
it also is a bit of a bit of a buzzword and i think there's a lot of confusion in businesses can we just clear up what it means to you yeah absolutely i think it's so funny you say that um i think you wouldn't have had me on the podcast if you didn't think i was going to be spicy i'm like <laughs> dei is such a stated focus that doesn't mean it's actually a focus and i think it's important to name that that DEI professionals are getting laid off, budgets are getting slashed, that lots of businesses like to say they have a commitment, but they're often really willing to put the kind of resources behind it that they make for other commitments. But I think that um, when you when you think about what it means to me, I think for me, there is a hierarchy of those letters. So you kind of alluded to this at the top of the show. Um, but I think that the discussion, you know, way back when really started focusing on diversity. And I think that was the wrong order of operations. So when we focus on diversity, what often happens is that the strategies we use are very tokenizing. Sort of the question is who is in the room, but what is often left out is how did they get there and what experience and power do they have in the room? And so I think that's really important. The reason I, so I would rank that third. Inclusion, I would rank second. And the reason is because in a homogenous environment, inclusion is cheap, right? And so it's not necessarily that meaningful if you're not actually ensuring that there's not a broad set of perspectives or lived experiences in the room. And I also think that often companies lean into inclusion or these sort of subjective feelings of connection, which I'll be the first person to admit are very important, but they're often um, used in place or to placate people for not solving the issues of equity that exist. So it's the idea of like companies that are willing to set up an ERG so that people can connect, but they're not willing to audit their programs to make sure that people are paid fairly. And so that's what I always rank equity as number one, because I both believe it's the most important if we're really grounding our work in sort of justice, but also because I believe that if you invest in equity first, inclusion and diversity are much easier on the other side. So it's not that I think that recruiting or ERGs are unimportant. I think they are important, but I don't think it's the right thing to do if you're not auditing your performance and pay and promotional processes that you can say you're truly committed to these things. So my personal order of operations is equity and then inclusion. And it turns out if you mine those two, diversity mostly solves itself. Absolutely. And I was so excited to be recording this episode with you when you talked about equity being the, you know, the most important because, you know, as a tech recruiter specializing in the product space, every company we work with is talking about diversity, diversity, diversity. But when you sit there with the CEOs and founders and, and leaders and you peel it back, they really just mean gender representation. They want to get more females into dev teams or more females at leadership team. And it's so much bigger than that. And then when you probe and you 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 try to challenge their thinking in a in a partnership way, in a respectable way, and you ask, you know, well, well what are you doing? You know, what 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 walk are you doing? Like talk, the, you know, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. And there's very little in in practice there to to address that, especially from an equitable perspective. Um, so, so yeah, really interesting to to keep exploring that equity piece. There, there are a lot of misconceptions and, and misunderstanding sort of in the community and even in organizations at, at a very senior level. Are there any common ones that 
that you come up against that you think we should just uh, dissect a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think you actually kind of alluded it to with your last comment, which is when people are talking about DEI or diversity, they often mean gender diversity. And if we're being really honest, what they mean is cisgender, straight, white, economically privileged women. Um, And if you ask them, they wouldn't necessarily say they consciously mean that, but the types of problems that they tend to think of first tend to impact those people. And I'm not here to tell you that like those problems don't matter or those women don't face barriers. They do, but they're not nearly as significant as what women of color or queer or disabled or immigrant um, or you know, low socioeconomic status women face. And so I think that's actually one of the most common misconceptions is that when you're building a successful um, equity and inclusion program, you should start with gender. And I think it's very counterintuitive to say that's not the way you should do it um, because you're like, well, gender is kind of the biggest category. Let's start with the largest total addressable market, right? To speak in product speak. But what I've actually found in my work is that by focusing on racism or specifically anti-racism, you actually have, it's, it's what I call the right order of operations. And the reason is because white supremacy and racism underlie all other systems of oppression. So racism is interlinked with those other systems. And so while I find it is often um, less comfortable for, um, for organizations to address, when you are willing to go right at looking at at racist and anti-racist systems within organizations, you begin building structures that actually create benefits for a much broader set of people. So my sort of real life example of this is at CultureAmp. When I joined the company in 2020, um, you know, in my interviews, I was very open with our CEO Didier that like, this is my method, this is what I do. And then of course, you know, summer 2020 with uh, George Floyd's murder made that all the more salient. I will tell you that we have never run a specific gender equity program at CultureNAMP. We're about 51% women globally. Um, And as a software company, um, 50% of our engineering leadership team is women and about 33% of our overall engineering organization um, is women. And so those numbers blow my mind every time I look at my dashboards. Again, the reason is because we believe that by teaching our leaders to deal with racism and anti-racism, they're developing skills that produce benefits for a broader set of, of folks, whereas we find that what most companies are doing is what we call corporate white feminism. And so it's not that people aren't building structures or skills that benefit some people. It's just that those some people tend to be the most privileged among those marginalized communities. So I go back to my order of operations is equity, inclusion, diversity. My other order of operations is looking at um, the experiences of racialized people, especially Black and Indigenous folks, then disabled folks, and then transgender folks. And I find if you really use people from those communities as your stress case or your design case for your systems, your processes, your experiences, um, the system tends to work pretty well for most people. Wow, a lot to to take in there. Those stats that you referenced at Cultramp are amazing. Um, two points to to follow up there. Firstly, you talk about sort of racist structures. Um, 
and and one of the things that's always felt very uncomfortable for me as a as a recruiter and a, and a business leader, um, and something that I've experienced personally, um, moving to Australia, and I still recognise a very privileged position, but something that is very common in in Australia in the hiring ecosystem is when people relocate from other countries that they don't have local market experience, therefore they get less salary than their peers or someone that would be you know, a local. What, what's your take on on that? That does feel inherently buried in, in racism, right? It's it's very uncomfortable. Oh, absolutely. I think it is. And I think there's a variance between like what I always call offshore talent, which is maybe like an industry term. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I find that like, you know, as an American, I, I can speak from lived experience as well as like HR experience is that is that offshore talent that's coming from the UK or the US or Canada actually has an advantage in the talent and pay market, whereas folks who are coming from Asia, for example, or Africa are at a disadvantage. And so I think that's the first sign that tells you that it's a racism issue, right? Um, majority white countries are getting a benefit while majority, uh, you know, BIPOC uh, countries are not. I think that there's a couple of different ways that you want to address that, which is going to line up with the way I think you address, um, you know, racism or any other system of oppression in organizations generally. So there's first structural elements that you put into place. So one, your compensation, your HR teams should be defining pay bands and should never pay under those, right? So um, I think it's really important that you have hard minimums. There, there are rates below which you do not pay. I think in addition to those things, you should have guidelines about experience. And that experience should be agnostic to where, you know, the candidate got that experience, knowing that especially in a globalized world, um, you know, people from different markets or countries likely are having similar experiences. But I also think there's an individual component to this. So if you're that hiring manager, simply refuse to pay someone under market, right? And I think that that can be a combination of Jade, like you've said, recruiters, right, who are coaching, who are partnering, who are guiding those hiring teams, but also the hiring managers, frankly, just having some ethics about it. I can tell you um, a story from my own life um, as a hiring manager. I once, um, this was for a US-based role, and, you know, I had a pay band, um, and it was hiring for a role that was uh, the same level as someone else already on my team. A slightly different specialty, but substantially a similar role. And I make it a practice to ask every candidate, you know, what are your expectations of getting paid for this role? And, you know, to make sure I can afford them um, and things like that. But I had a candidate whose top of their request was $20,000 less than what I would have paid them based on similarly leveled people in my team. They ended up being the perfect candidate and we gave them an offer and I gave them the offer at the rate that I felt was fair and equitable based on the team members I already had. Now, I will tell you, I've never had someone accept a job offer so fast. Um, but they were also pretty blown away at the salary that was offered. And um, But for me, it was never a question and it actually wasn't... Um, while I'm very happy that it was an effective talent acquisition strategy, for me, it was just about the type of leader I wanted to be, is that I don't want someone to be treated unfairly. And I was also very conscious that 
um, the individual was from multiple marginalized backgrounds. And so likely either knew a penalty for giving too high a number or simply didn't have the information to properly um, ask for their compensation. And so that was like a, I would have done it for anyone, but it felt especially important to me given my knowledge of this person's sort of marginalized identities. So that's what I would say is the structures have to be in place but the individuals also have to take ownership over making equitable decisions. Absolutely. And then the second question that I had is you mentioned there marginalized communities and having a, a focus on those. One of the, the, I guess, the challenges as a recruiter um, that I think about is you're trying to bring more marginalized communities into the workplace, give them equitable opportunities, but at the same time, I know that they don't want to be tokenized and commoditized and, you know, feeling like somebody only got a job because you are X, Y, or, or Z. How do you suggest we go about, you know, building and nurturing relationships and accessing more marginalized talents and bringing them into those hiring processes? I think that's a great idea. And there's no like one single thing that you can do, but I would say first, build community with people who are already in your organization. Um, so like become someone who is known to be an ally, um, knowing you can't name yourself that, right? It is a title that's given to you. But are you involved in the ally communities of your ERGs? Are you showing up? Are you intentionally building mentorship or sponsorship relationships with people from those communities? And I think that's important for two reasons. One, the Whisper Network is super strong in marginalized communities, so people will have heard of you, but it also builds your skill set and awareness of those experiences so that you actually show up as a better human being um, in those relationships, right? You're going to be more aware of what's needed of you. So I think that's number one. And then I would say, look at community organizations or make sure that you're partnering with your recruiting team to actually begin to build connections in that community. So that's number one. And I think that's important because if you get asked, like, why should I work for you? And no one's going to say it that bluntly, but like, you know, I ask leaders, you know, as a Latina woman, as a queer person, as a disabled person, like, how do I know that I'm going to be supported by you as a, as a manager? Um, you want to have a compelling answer. And I promise you, if you have one, you are going to be light years ahead of all the other hiring managers that person's talking to, because it's quite a rare thing to have an articulate answer for that. Um, but then I think it's also about working with your hiring partners and being thoughtful about the messages that you're sending to the market. So there is, and I understand that, for example, writing job ads is an art and a science, um, but there are known things that make jobs more attractive to people from marginalized backgrounds. So uh, item number one, include language on your job ads about the fact that you're intending to build an equitable workplace and have an equitable hiring process. And people say like, oh, isn't that low hanging fruit? It is. But think about it this way. If you're not willing to put a sentence or two on a job ad, how likely are you to put in the hard work to create an inclusive environment, right? So it's not perfect, but there's that. Um, there's also language that I put on my job ads, which is I call out um, that even if someone doesn't have all the requirements, they should reach out um, because I would love to be the judge about whether they're a great fit as opposed to them counting themselves out first. Um, the last two pieces comes down to how you write your requirements for jobs. So one, 
growth mindset language always uh, and write it as a marketing document, not a list of demands, but also be really intentional about what's actually required. So I see these job ads with like 10, 12 requirements. And all I have to say is that's utter bullshit. You're never going to find that person. You were never actually, those were never requirements. And so my rule is um, five requirements and three recommended qualifications. Because my belief is if I can't boil the job down into those five things, I probably don't understand it well enough to hire for it. Um, And so what I have found is that as I've moved to that model, I've hired some of that most highly talented and the most diverse team that I've ever run. And that really came down to me being really open-minded and has totally changed. Um, Like a real life story, uh, someone currently on my team, you know, approached approached me about a role that was quite specific. I was like very nervous about going to market for this role because I had dreamed it up and never seen one like it. And um, the team member who came came to me had experience in about maybe 75% of the role, but also wanted to be part-time. And I had not actually scoped the role that way. And the other 25%, uh, they had experience that I had never imagined bringing to the role. And so they have done amazing work on my team. But if I had scoped the role so tightly, um, or I had not shown that I was really open-minded about the candidates that I would consider, I probably never even would have had a chance to interview that person. Um, And so I just share that as like, I use these strategies myself as a hiring manager. And I have found that the more I lean into them, the better team I'm actually building. I completely agree. Um, and what you said there around language is is so important. You know, I still today in 2023, you know, if I'm looking at LinkedIn or I see an ad and I see the language, you know, we're looking for a ninja or a unicorn. And I'm like, who goes around calling themselves a ninja or a unicorn? You know, if I see something like that, it's just going to put me off applying for a role. It's very masculine language and, and you're really ruling out a lot of people. And I don't suspect there's many marginalized people going around considering themselves a a unicorn at their craft or a ninja, right? Um, So language is is so important. And I think, you know, one of the benefits of, you know, potentially organizations partnering with external recruitment partners and the success we've had with, with our clients is we know our candidates deeply. And when we're working with someone, we can talk to the hiring manager and say, don't even look at this CV like this. This person has X, Y, and Z, and I think they're a great fit for your business because like, if you just go through a traditional ad, you might not get picked up for whatever reason, but you're able to leverage relationships. And so many times I've been fortunate enough to to call up a hiring manager or a leader I've worked with and said, you'll hire this person after 20 minutes and they meet and they're like, an amazing fit. And it's because you invest the time to nurture relationships. We've worked with these people for 14 plus years and people are more than a CV. And most people in tech aren't salespeople. They're not skilled at selling themselves and promoting themselves. Um, and, and I think, you know, CVs, they might be, I'm going to say it dead one day, you know, they're not best at selling people. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the benefits that working with an external partner or teams such as yourself that can help hiring managers have a much more holistic view of a person as opposed to words on CV. 
I think that's totally right. Um, speaking as someone who uh, I used to be a writer, so like writing a CV is something that like I kind of weirdly enjoy because I love sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. But I recognize that there are lots of brilliant people who are not good at any of those things, and so. For me, it goes back to this idea of making sure that the proxies we're using for actual underlying skills or abilities are accurate and relevant. And I think, um, you know, I, my career, like grew up in Silicon Valley where so many of the proxies are broken. It's like, oh, did you used to work at Google or did you go to Harvard? And it turns out that like, sure, plenty of smart people worked at Google or went to Harvard. The majority of incredibly talented, wonderful, capable people did none of those things. Um, and so it's that that's what it comes down to for me is be very intentional about the proxies you're choosing. And Jade, to your point, one of those proxies might be the word of someone who's incredibly experienced at sussing out that information. Because I think there's also a bit of a I will point fingers at myself before I do it to anyone else, but there's often like an arrogance with interviewers and hiring managers that we, we confuse in ourselves the ability to do something well with the ability to assess whether other people can do it well. And those are actually separate skills. Um, and so that's like a bit of humility that I've gotten over my career is to really lean into and, and trust the expertise of my hiring partners who are probably a little bit better on the like assessment spectrum. So I can explain what I'm looking for, but it's actually that partnership that helps me get to that like right assessment. 100%. And I think, you know, there is that sometimes a bit of an ego in the hiring process in that when someone gets in front of a hiring manager in an interview, it's almost you prove to me now why I should hire you. And it's actually like, how are you setting that person up to to be successful? Interviews are nerve wracking for the best of for the best of us, skilled interviewers that are, you know, good at selling themselves get nervous during an interview. You know, when we work with people, we we really coach and encourage people that when you meet with someone, look for reasons to hire them. You're you're qualifying people into your organization as opposed to trying to qualify them out and put people, you prove to me why I should hire you. And unfortunately, that's very common. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things that gets caught up in this, and there's lots of research that shows that um, when we are assessing skill, we often mistake confidence for competence. And there's a lot of different cultural, like one, there's so many socialized biases in there. Like one for me that always sticks out is one, men are socialized to be more confident in the way they present themselves than women, but also understanding that Western countries are more socialized to be, I would say, a little more arrogant, speaking as an American, um, than, say, more Asian cultures. And those differences have absolutely no bearing on the skill and competence of those people, but the cultural norms change how someone would describe their work on a project, even if it was identical to a peer's. Um, and I would say, uh, fun fact, I am about to become uh, an honorary Aussie in a couple of weeks, but that's something that I've learned to understand as I've worked with Australian companies for the last eight years is even as an American, that Americans are socialized to be significantly more self-confident and sort of self-congratulatory maybe than even Australians, white Australians. And so, um, like that's something that I've just become very sensitive to is how do I suss out and use questions like 
Could you give me an example of your contribution there or something that gets a little bit more fact-based so I'm less tied into someone's sort of way that they present themselves and I really give them the floor to, to tell me more about what they've done? That's a really good example. And I think there are definitely um, a lot of cultural influences that do impact how people present themselves. And that leads me on beautifully to the next question that I had for you, Aubrey. What do you see as the biggest barriers to achieving equity in the workplace? I think people don't want to create space or give up privilege. Um, I think one of the really unhelpful stories that we say is, so I think it is absolutely true that greater equity benefits everyone. Like I will say, I will, I will die on that hill. Um, but I think it is um, dishonest and unhelpful to say that it doesn't sometimes require that some people give things up. It does. And, and so I think that, you know, getting your toys taken away is not fun. Um, and it, it's a painful emotional process. So I don't necessarily think that everyone is ill-intentioned. I'm both a believer in the good of humanity and very much an optimist. Um, but I think that sometimes people um, believe themselves to be good people and speak aspirationally about their commitments as opposed to sitting down and actually asking like, what am I willing to risk or give up in service of this commitment that I'm willing to speak? And um, I, I can speak from experience. You know, it's taken me, um, I say I want to be an equity in this space. I feel like I kind of first if I want to take people out. And, you know, one of the one of the big lessons I learned as, as someone who's, you know, quite uh, willing to speak up and say something is I've had to get more humble about when I'm not the one who needs to say something. I'm the one who needs to create the space for someone else to say something or someone else to step in the room. And um, I would say I have messed that up many times uh, in my career and in my advocacy. But that's an example where, you know, when I've been approached to get on stage and talk about a topic, I can say, you know, there's someone I know who is more qualified um, for that, or, um, you know, places where I've said, you know, I don't see the kind of representation on this panel that I'd like to see. Why don't you give my spot to someone else? Um, and so not to, it's, you know, those things don't fundamentally change my life in a meaningful way, but those little steps matter. There's obviously some bigger things that I've done. Um, but, but I think that those little actions are what I think are the blockers is where people don't do the hard introspective work to say, if I'm the kind of person who believes in equity, what am I willing to risk or what am I willing to give up? And I wish us as practitioners took more accountability for being honest with people that that's actually the set of decisions that enabling equity requires. They're really good examples. And I'm a big believer in it's the 1%. You know, we don't have to go out there and try to change everything all at once. But like you said, they're just little examples of those 1% changes that would make a huge impact on, hey, I'm, I don't think there's great representation here. Let me give my spot to someone else is, is such a meaningful um, thing to do. I guess if we look sort of a bit more... Um, holistically sort of in the workplace, what would be some of the most effective strategies you've seen for promoting equity in the workplace? Like, is there one or two things that we could 
take away today and and advocate for or you know even implement yeah so this is going to sound really cheeky but i'm like advocate budget and time and i like that sounds almost sarcastic and i truly don't mean it that way it's just that i see that there's aspirational statements made but there's very little um like that people bring to bear in terms of like the planning and the investment side of it and i always think it's um kind of funny because these people act like it's so confusing and i'm like you know how to write a strategy you know how to write an operating plan like i will tell you as someone who's been doing this work for a decade like most of the skills are really similar no matter the issue area and there was research um it will be updated for uh early 2024 but um in the 2022 a workplace dei report that culture put out um, we studied like which types of programs actually create diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there are three factors that most predict um, whether you get sort of diversity um, of experiences in your organization. And it's one, collecting data on the issue. Uh, two, having supportive policies. And three, having a strategic plan in place. And I'm telling you, none of that sounds like rocket science, right? And so that would be my biggest tip is if you're the CEO or the CFO, that means like fully funding a program, but it can also mean a team leader setting aside time in your team meetings once a week or once a month to have the team read an article or watch a video about equity and inclusion and discuss it for 10 minutes. If you're an individual contributor, it means doing a little bit of self-education on a weekly or monthly basis to understand how to be an inclusive teammate or how to be a more effective advocate. Um, and you know, I have a million resources for things like if you're running a department, it can mean insisting that HR do performance and pay equity audits for your department before those processes are closed. And so think it's about spending the time on it and i love the point you made i'm also a big believer in the one percent is that it's not about doing everything it's about consistently um there's a book called atomic habits that i'm a bit and uh they talk about if you make a one percent improvement every day in just a year it's a 300 and so i always think about the idea if we look at the project of equity as 1% improvements in our decision making our actions, and we each took responsibility for improving 1% every week, an entire organizational culture would shift, right? And so it's easy to get lost in like all of the systems of oppression and all of the ways that things are broken. But what if you just said, what's the next equitable thing I can do? And then just commit to that one thing you can actually create enormous change. Absolutely, absolutely. And that leads beautifully on to my next question. You know, there's a lot of people out there that um, advocate that they're champions for DE&I and that they're an ally. Um, and it's, you know, like you said, you can't give yourself the, the title, but a lot of people do. You mentioned there, you know, if you're an individual, you can do some self-learning, you can dedicate time. But is there anything else that we as individuals listening today can, you know, go away and go, this is something I am going to commit to. This is some change I'm going to drive. And, and like you said, then that builds them much more impact over a longer period of time. Yeah, I think um, this is a bigger lifestyle thing, but like audit your personal network. 
you know, if you're a white person who only has white friends, that says something about your values. I'm not here to be judgy, but, you know, think about, let's say you're a parent and you, you tell your kids that you value diversity and then they don't need diversity in your social network. Your kids more than they believe your words. Um, and so I would say that's actually really important is so often, um, this is true in America, America is very, very segregated, but I know that Australia is similar in this way, is that without intentionally diversifying our lives and building communities that reflect the world that we live in, um, we're just not going to get there. We are going to walk around with incredible gaps in our own knowledge because we're continuously exposed to make ourselves. So what I would say is don't just rely on your workplace to be the place where you interact with people who are different than yourselves. And yes, that is scary. It requires putting yourself out there. But think about, you know, do you have an option of the social clubs that you inhabit or, you know, the sports on the weekend or the schools that your children can attend or, you know, the like there are lots and lots of different ways to build an intentional community that get you access to people with different life stories and perspectives than you. And so um, I know that sounds like a big thing, but I have found that you're better equipped to show up in the workplace. If you think about this as, you know, answering it as a question of who do I want to be and how do I want to connect to those values that I'm having? Um, and because uh, research also says that um, it's when we take something on as an identity and really integrate it. So I love that idea of saying, like, I am an equitable person and here's how I live those values. It'll start showing up in all aspects of your life, not just in work. Amazing tips. Amazing. And then you've touched on this a little bit earlier about measuring progress, but from a, a, a workplace perspective, a business environment, how do we measure our, our progress? Is there any specific metrics yeah, I, that you think are important? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a couple of like different things to think about. Like there's metrics for each letter. So I'll just go in order. So thinking about city, you want to measure representations. So like how many people are there? And you want to look at that at different points in your talent life cycle. So what are the different stages of your candidate funnel look like? What do different levels, departments, et cetera, look like? Um, equity, you want to look at the outcomes of processes. So, you know, what is the distribution of performance scores? What are the promotion rates between groups? How long are different groups taking to get promoted? Um, and then inclusion, you really want to measure that subjective experience. So I happen to be highly biased to that. I think Culture Amps DEI survey is a fantastic resource. Um, to measure that experience. Um, so yes, you can use our platform. Um, no, I don't get paid on commission. Um, but our actually our diversity, equity, and inclusion survey, the questions that we ask, which are validated by our internal team of IO psychologists, is actually free and available for anyone. So we love if you use it in our platform, but we think it's important enough for all organizations that we are happy to share that um, with anyone who has interest. And so I think it's about representation in the talent life cycle you know, equitable representation of outcomes of processes, and then also measuring the different aspects of subjective experience, which gets you to inclusion. And I think all of those kind of metrics get you a holistic picture of what I would just call system health. Fantastic. Aubrey, 
You've been amazing. Um, and I've loved this conversation. I absolutely love your online content. You've actually helped me personally. I didn't realize that I used ableist language um, until I saw you posting about it. And now I'm so consciously aware of it that that I'm doing so much better. So, you know, personally, thank you for being you and doing what you do and sharing your content with us freely on those platforms. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, ableist language, it still gets me. I am, um, one thing I would emphasize to everybody is like people often call me an expert or whatever. And I often feel like that's so silly because I am constantly learning and I constantly feel like a beginner. And so I would just encourage anyone, one, happy to check out my content, but remember that if you ever feel like a newbie or a beginner, you're probably doing it right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just following you on LinkedIn and seeing that. And it was just like, oh, I did not realize, like I was completely unaware that I did that. And I think, you know, like you said, it's those 1% things that if you're striving to be better and more inclusive, then you need to to check yourself and be be honest about that. How can we stay connected with you going forward? Um, so you can always get me on the internet. Um, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. Uh, where you can find me. I do have Twitter and Instagram, but I'm a little less uh, engaged on that. People also can check out my website. It's just aubreyblanche.com and there's a form they can get in touch with me if they're interested. Um, but yeah, and then I think watch uh, Culture Ant. There's a lot of people. Um, it's not all me, I promise. There's hundreds of people doing lots of equity and inclusion work there. Um, but yeah, uh, we're all kind of working as a team on that. Amazing. And lastly, what would be one piece of advice you have for people looking to make more meaningful progress towards building a more diverse, inclusive, and ultimately equitable world? I would say uh, look at your social media feeds, who you're following and who you're listening to, and making sure that the people you're following are expanding your worldview and expanding your understanding of perspectives outside of your own lived experience. Um, I am a big fan of Twitter, LinkedIn, and TikTok um, for this. And some of the the best education I've ever gotten has been on social media. Absolutely agreed. Aubrey, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the Product Edge. Thank you so much for having me, Jade. And thank you, everyone, who took the time to listen. Thank you for listening to the Product Edge, brought to you by Middleton Executive. You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.